Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Um, uh, we're invading your weekends. It's the very first uh, Sunday descent upon your um, uh, weekend time with me, Al Murray, and James Holland, of course, in his beautiful book-lined library um, man cave with an SMLE in the background. James, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you, Al. How are you? Great. Yeah, really good. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. Brilliant. I, I've never, I've never felt better during this pandemic. <laughs> You're looking very healthy so, and well. So, James, who are we joined by today? Well, I've got, to, I've got to uh, admit, uh, this is this is a good one for me because we've got Annabelle Vanning, and Annabelle is um, a neighbour of mine, but also uh, one of my greatest mates, and of course is married to that reprobate uh, Guy Walters. Um, ah. And... Uh, <laughs> The, um, the evil, the evil hunter himself. The evil hunter himself, exactly. Um, but Annabelle is 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 a is a a, a writer in her own right, uh, an historian, and um, wrote a fabulous book, which I, I was lucky enough to read in manuscript form, and I really, really loved it. It's very, very interesting. And we just thought because, and and it's to war with the Walkers, which is basically about her family, her extraordinary family, her grandfather and her uncles and um, her great uncles and great aunts. And what they got up to in the war. And boy, did they all have an amazing war. I mean, they were all over the place, but particularly in the Far East, but also involved in the Blitz. There was nurses, there's doctor, there's 
uh, um, decorated heroes in, in Burma and all the rest of it. So it's an amazing story. And we thought, well, since we're starting this new kind of sort of uh, um, family orientated um, podcast for Sundays, what could be better than talking to Annabelle, who's actually done it, who's done that whole ancestry thing, looked into a family and researched it properly and actually ended up with a, a fine book at the end of it. Thank you. <laughs> well, well, welcome to We Have Ways. So, Annabelle, when, when you're... Because my family, I know fragments of my family's Second World War history. And we, in fact, and we've done, we've done some of it on the programme because my father's researched some of it. Where do you start? Because, because the thing I know uh, from my family's experience is there are the stories that your great aunt has about what happened. Um, and, and to, 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 for instance, to her brother, my grandfather, James, there's her story about what happened and the, the received view she had. And then, of course, there's something completely different, which is when you when you nudge into it at all and then you get further into it. And it can it can often be the complete reverse of what you thought, you know. So where do you begin? Yes, it, it is exactly as you say. Um, I started uh, with talking to my great aunt. Ruth, who was the youngest of the six uh, siblings. So my uh, grandfather, Walter, um, had three brothers and two sisters. And um, my grandfather died in um, 2001. But he he sort of mentioned things about his war, you know, along the way. He wasn't one of those people who didn't want to talk about the war. He did quite like to talk about the war. So I was aware of various stories about his his war. Um, but I'd never really questioned him that closely. And then I started talking to Aunt Ruth, um, who was in her late 80s by then. Um, and she sort of, you know, she had a couple of stories about uh, her time as a nurse in the in the Blitz. Um, and, you know, as soon as she started talking, I was completely blown away because, you know, it was incredibly dramatic. Uh, and originally I was just going to focus on her and then, uh, the more she talked about, she sort of mentioned in passing, oh, and, you know, and that was when my brother Peter was a prisoner of war. Oh, and that was when, you know, Walter was in Burma. And and I realised that it had to be the six of them. Uh, so then I sort of used her stories as a jumping off point. But as you say, you know, what she remembered and what family myth has passed down doesn't, um, doesn't always match up. Uh, so I was prepared to have things slightly turned on their head but actually her memory was was really good um and she was quite a um dry low-key sort of person she didn't you know she wasn't given to exaggeration everything she told me I was able to to check out through the archives and although she often got the chronology wrong it was 70 years ago um she you know broadly um write about all the events she mentioned so so yeah Ruth's so the essence were... is right the essence is right if even if the detail isn't exactly exactly yeah so so um it was a series of interviews with her recording her that were my my jumping off point but then also there were you know photo albums um from my grandparents time in india and my grandfather had a book written about him a biography by the war correspondent tom pocock so that was a great foundation and he'd also written his own memoir um towards the end of his life which had you know slightly different recollections in that hadn't made it into Tom Pocock's book um and then it was you know a case of really ferreting out what else I could from all their children so I went you know around the country talking to um my second cousins who most of whom I hadn't really met before um and just asking what stories their parents had told them about the war and again checking them out 
from whatever I whatever sources I could find. There were a few letters, sadly not very many, um, but yeah, there were photo albums and with the ones who were in the army, they had records and Ruth's nursing record uh, was got that from the London Metropolitan Archives. So, you know, the more you know, the 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 more you can sort of unravel. So there's quite a lot of basic sleuthing to be done, really, to, to sort of piece together the paper record. Yeah. And then and then you have to fill in the, the stuff that isn't on paper, don't you? That's the I suppose that's the, the hard part, really, isn't it? Because after all, you can say where, where someone was on a certain date, but but what then happens and again the order they remembered in because I mean James and I often talk about on this when you get a veteran on or when you interview a veteran and you know they're um, unfortunately that what they're saying doesn't match up with what you think you know and, and all that and that's and it's quite tricky because you can't contradict them yes no that is really hard I agree um, and there were things that I couldn't uh, say so for example with Peter um, one of the brothers who was a prisoner of war on the death railway he told his family um, various stories but he hadn't written anything down um, he hadn't recorded anything I went out to Thailand and Burma and um, you know, saw where he'd been held and so on. And he did have a liberation questionnaire which um, told what camps he was in. But to, to get a, a better picture of what conditions were like in the camps, you know, I had to go to other people's diaries and you know find out who was at the, such and such camp and such and such time and go to their diaries in the Imperial War Museum or um, recordings that they'd made for the Imperial War Museum or um, self-published memoirs. And, you know, discover what the conditions were there, uh, were like there when Peter was there. And so when he described being beaten at such and such camp, I would then be able to find... Other accounts exactly, of that happening. Exactly, yeah. 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 And so, in the um, sort of affidavits from the war crimes afterwards. So, so, so take us through it. So Peter was, um, uh, which regiment was in? Was he in? So he so, was in 14th Army and, uh, uh, and was captured. Uh, well, he, and... he was in the 1st first, uh, first 8th Punjab. Right. So he was not um, a regular soldier. So the two regular soldiers were um, Edward, who was the oldest, and Walter, and they both joined... And Walter's your grandfather, isn't he? Walter's my grandfather, exactly. And they both joined the Indian Army, you know, straight out... Well, school, then Sandhurst, then the Indian Army. So they were both serving in India in the 30s. And um, Peter was a tea planter in India, in Assam. Uh, so three brothers were in India. But ironically, it was um, Peter that uh, first fought against Japanese while uh, Walter was fighting on the Northwest Frontier and Edward was sort of um, in staff jobs, desperate to yeah, get involved that, I mean, in the that's action. Really interesting. I mean, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because people forget that, that while the, the war against Japan, you know, all the, all the kind of normal kind of empire policing stuff that you have to, have to be doing against the sort of wazes on the Northwest Frontier is still going on. Exactly. I mean, my, in fact- my uncle joined the Indian Army in 1944 uh, and he was posted out to, posted out to India. Uh, and he ended up on the northwest frontier, not in Burma. I mean, eventually in 1945 he went to Burma, but but he was only after right at the very end of the war, and he never saw any action there. But but you know he was he was in a in a mountain artillery unit in in the northwest frontier in 1945. Yeah, that's all that's all still ticking over, isn't it? Essentially, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And and also, what are the Soviets going to do after the war? Is obviously a, a question that starts creeping in in the last couple of years isn't it because that's the, the is, we're back into the great game and all that sort of stuff aren't we in, in that yeah. part of the world exactly. so, so Peter yeah. so Peter's a plantation owner you've got Walter uh, and Edward well, a regular a regular army yeah he's yeah. just he's just a manager on a tea plantation manager, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so Walter and Edward are in the regular army the fourth brother Harold is a um learning to be a doctor at St Thomas's Hospital 
in London. There's an older sister, B, Beatrice, who's um, a model, mannequin as they were called, for Norman Hartnell in London, um, and kind of a girl about town, um, not getting involved in any, any war work to start with. Uh, and then Ruth, the youngest, um, she was engaged at the beginning of the war, but her fiancé was in um, Borneo, and she, because um, they were going to get married in 1940, which then obviously couldn't happen. Um, so she then um, joined um, St. Thomas's as well as a as a nurse. So she was training as a nurse in 1939. So, yeah, so 1940, you've got three of them in London when the Blitz begins and the other three in India. And then Peter, by 1941, is uh, posted to... Malaya, and he joined the first eight Punjabs because he wanted to serve with his older brother Edward. But pretty much as soon as Ed, as Peter arrived in Malaya, Edward was posted back to India for a staff job. So they never actually served together. And um, Peter was, yeah, as I say, the first to to see action against Japanese when the Japanese invaded and gets captured. Uh, eventually, yes. Yeah. So he fought um, all the way down that horrific retreat, all the way down Malaya, um, and his his um, regiment his the first eight Punjabs had a, a really tough time of it. Um, they fought all the sort of, you know, really grim battles um, down the Malayan Peninsula. Um, and in fact, he was the only British officer. There were also Indian officers, but he was the only British officer to um, survive all the way, you know, to carry on all the way down. The, the others killed, um, you know, the very first battle, his CO and second in command were killed. Um, and some of the other officers went off to other places. So, but Peter carried on all the way down, and he was in Singapore, um, you know, fighting to the last when it when they surrendered. Yeah, amazing. And ends up on the on the um, the Thai Burma Railway. Yeah, yeah, had a horrific time. And his widow, um, and she was a great interviewee because um, he married twice. So his second wife was um, is still alive and um, quite a bit younger than him and she told me about how he you know he suffered after after the war from his injuries his mental and physical injuries so she said there wasn't an inch on his back between scars from the beatings that he had while he was in the railway and also you know you see the you've got pictures in your book of him and and it's quite interesting isn't it because it, you know he's it, at the start of the war, he's sort of young and fresh-faced and got all his hair and all the rest of it. And by the end of it, he's gaunt and, you know, his hair's receding and, uh, you know, he he just looks 10 years older than he is. Yeah, absolutely. 15. He looks like he's aged about 15 years, you know, yeah, in the space of three years. Uh, and, and, I mean, just to... I'd love to sort of talk more about, about what they got up to, but... but before that, let's just go to the sort of the process of it. So, I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about archives and going and visiting places and looking at the Imperial War Museum and stuff. But for those who haven't done archival research, I mean, what, I mean, how does one get to queue? How do you find out about sort of, how do you get your aunt's, great aunt's um, nursing details? I mean, wh- where do you go and, and how much can you do just sort of sitting on, on your ass in your office, kind of twiddling around on the computer and Google and stuff? And how much do you actually have to get off your ass and then sort of go up to London or what, wherever? Yeah, a bit of both. So um, sites like Ancestry and Find My Past were really great for uh, dates. So, you Are know, they? Ruth, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so Ruth would say, oh, um, John, that was her fiance, went out to Sarawak you know, in 1930-something. And I would then be able to look at the passenger records on the ships and search by name and see that, oh, yes, he was he did depart from Southampton on... No you know, way. And that's on yeah. Ancestry? 
uh, it was on either, and I think it's on Find My Past actually. Um, you literally really? have, you know, I'm looking at it on the wall because I got notes up on my wall. Um, you know, the date that he arrives back in Liverpool um, in seventh of June, nineteen forty-two. That's from Find My Past. He, you can see his journey back from he'd got he'd. It's a, a long story, but he was shot down in the over the Timor Sea, rescued, got to Australia, went back to Britain to join up. Um, via Lagos and that journey from Australia to back to Britain was you know documented because it, well, the passenger lists are all available on Find My Past. And so you can join that up fairly easily so you look you can find out which ship it is you can find out how many funnels it is you can find out what the what it cost what class they traveled and start to paint a a picture out out of that essentially can't you? Yes I imagine going to that level of detail for that particular journey no but, but you know what, you but know what yes, i mean as exactly. an example that, yeah. that's what that offer that's what that offers you yes and you can find out that actually later that ship got torpedoed you know yeah. off the african coast and yeah. so yeah so there's a tremendous amount you can do sitting on your ass to um nail down the dates and and also there's amazing newspaper archives online so there's the british newspaper archive that has uh, lo- lots and lots of local papers uploaded and you subscribe to that um and you can read um, you know, accounts of what was happening in the war because that was all covered in local papers. I could read the account of um, when Peter came back from the war in 1945. There were accounts uh, in the local paper. So they, the, the family, the Walker family, lived in Tiverton in Devon um, through the tw- um, 1930s, 20s and 30s. But by the end of the war, my great-grandparents had moved to Surrey. And so I found an account in the Surrey Advertiser, um, Captain and Mrs Walker welcomed their son Peter back from um, the prisoner of war camp, um, you know, delighted to say that Lieutenant Walker had survived. And and within that same report, you'd have other families in Surrey who'd only got one of their two sons back. One of them had survived the death railway and the other had died in a camp further up the railway. Somebody else was still waiting. And, you know, also in, in May 1945, when you had reports of everyone you know VE day and everyone celebrating again you had very poignantly these reports in local papers of people who were still waiting to hear whether their sons were alive in yeah, camps yeah, yeah. In, in Burma Amazing. so uh, local papers were a great source there's also Australian papers online um and so through, yes I've used those in the past yeah that's really good um I think mm. it's called Trove and through the Australian papers I was able to find the account. So Ruth, Aunt Ruth had told me this incredible story of how John Fisher, her fiance, um, before the war, uh, had gone back to Sarawak um, before the war started began. They, you know, got engaged, and she was really kind of preparing her trousseau to go out there and marry him in 1940. And that obviously couldn't happen. But he was in um, Sarawak in 1941. He'd gone to Australia on leave in December just, you know, for a holiday. And so he was in Australia when the Japanese invaded Sarawak, which is in North, in North just Borneo. Just amazing strike of luck. Yeah, I know, really lucky. But he was felt horrified that all his friends were about to be captured by the Japanese. So he and a couple of others who happened to be on leave, a couple of civilians, he was a, a district officer there, um, got together and it was, you know, all sort of, um, officially sanctioned they got a seaplane and they were trying to get to Borneo to you know re- rescue who they could and this was as the Japanese were you know progressing through Southeast Asia and their seaplane was shot down uh, in in the Timor Sea um, the, the Japanese Zero homed in on them and 
something there's a rush tattle on the you know fuselage and the part the the pilot is shot you know the several of the passengers are shot and the pilot manages to see to land the seaplane safely and there's um i think uh four survivors including the captain and john was one of the survivors and he's you know shot through his hand and he's you know got a, a broken collarbone and um the pilots also got bullet wounds um and for a while they float around you know grabbing at mail sacks that the plane had been carrying and then they strike out for sure there's an island in the distance and they swim for sure and, and john had a very sort of deprecate self-deprecating way of telling the stories and you know he this was passed on to me from ruth saying you know i, I managed to, to get ashore there was a shark circling me but you know it went away after a while and as he's bleeding <laughs> Exactly. And they, you know, they were sort of, um, they were swimming around in the water while the Zero was circling overhead and, and swooped down and they thought going to finish them off with, you know, machine guns. But he didn't. He then flew off. And, and John, apparently, this is from one of the Australian papers, turned to one of the other survivors and said, oh, it was jolly sporting of them not to shoot us up in the water. We're just going to take a short break now. We're talking to Annabel Venning. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. We are talking to Annabel Venning about how to look into your family's history. I've got to say, Annabel, I've got, I remember reading the book and thinking I've got massive um, family wartime experiences, Envy. Um, you know, <laughs> you know that, yeah. that's really, I mean, what I would do to have a family record like this, I mean, I'd have just been... <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was... but but so you've so you've got so you've got newspapers you've got yeah you've got other sort of various archives you've got your own family stuff of course as well um, yeah th- there's obviously q which is uh, for yes. those who don't know it used to be the public records office which used to be housed at somerset house in the center of london um f- famously infamously bombed by the luftwaffe um during the blitz um which led to the incineration of two-thirds of all the other ranks records from the first world war and a third of all the officers records so they've just gone um so if you've got a if you're trying to research one of your family members who was in the first world war you've either depending on whether they're an officer or or in the in the ranks you've got a, either a kind of one in three or a two in three chances of of that they still exist um and, and then moved um some years ago to a purpose-built sort of looks like a sort of modern university campus um near Kew Bridge and you can get the tube to Kew Bridge or you can drive up or whatever um and it's and it is an incredibly efficient um archive it has to be said and you go there and you know I think you need you need your passport don't you, your driving license or something and a, and a proof of your address and stuff and, and you're in and you get your little card and and off you go and it's incredibly easy to use and you can research it all online beforehand they've got an incredibly good um search facility but I mean you know I've done an awful lot of um uh, researching of, of battalion war diaries and that sort of thing and squadrons and stuff but but obviously y- your great uncles and grandfather were in the Indian army so I mean can you get those can you get the Punjabi regiments and Gurkha regiments online as, uh, um, at Q or are they in Quetta or something <laughs> um, I didn't I couldn't find very much for the Punjabs I have to say the, but for the Gurkhas um, so my grandfather Walter joined the first eight Gurkhas um, in 1933 but um, he then was uh, transferred to the 4th 8th Gurkhas right. and which is a war raised battalion uh, so the 4th 8th Gurkhas their war diary was available at Q so I could go through that you know day by day and it has yeah. pretty much hour by hour what they're doing and you know you need to kind of translate 
military speak a bit, but um, yeah. once you get your head around that, the, the various abbreviations, again, you can see exactly where they are. And that was fantastic for when I went out to Burma to follow in his footsteps because I could, you know, go to Milong Bayer and you know, where they were in 5th of March. Um, and also... And you're um, standing on that same place. And I always find that... Exactly. I mean, for me, I've, I've... I mean, you know, Al knows how much I bang on about walking walking the ground and stuff. But, you know, it is very, very exciting to be there, I think, when you've got... It's, some When yeah. you've got someone that you've spoken to or someone you know or someone's account or whatever and, you're, and he's writing about it or has told you about it and there you are on exactly the same spot. It's, it's Yeah, and, you know, to be exactly where my grandfather stood when he was commanding this battle... Um, and and the stories I'd actually heard from his mouth, you know, had taken place right there. He talked about this this very brutal battle in the searing heat and you know, March in Burma, and there I was in the searing heat and March in Burma, standing, you know, at the pagoda where he'd had his headquarters, battalion headquarters. He'd nearly got wiped out by a shell on a couple of occasions. Uh, you know, that was amazing. And and then later, you know, further down south in Burma, we find this village that. He'd written about the war, the battle that took place there in, in May 1945. And I wasn't sure I was going to find the village because it wasn't on Google Maps. And all the village names, or a lot of the village names in Burma had, had changed by then. Um, and there's, you know, not a lot of signposts in rural Burma. Um, so it was really touch and go. But And then when we got there, we were in a, a car with a, a, a driver who, it was just a saloon car and and the and we got to the turn off for the village and this is sort of vertiginous track down a valley side sort of sandy track and tried going down with a car and it just wasn't working at all and the sun was setting and I was thinking we're not going to get there we're not going to get there and you know you can't just stay overnight somewhere in in Burma Myanmar in the end um these three guys came along with motorbikes at exactly the right moment and took us down into the valley um, this place called Tongdao, which I can't pronounce it, Tongdao, which was where he'd fought this battle in 1945, that he, he, May 1945, that he remembered so clearly that, you know, only three months before he died, he wrote a seven-page account about it for a, a military magazine. And to be standing there where he had to take these awful decisions of, you know, how where to bring airstrikes in, whether to send one of his really good friends up a ridge to take the Japanese position that was hammering the guys down in the valley, knowing that this chap who he really liked, this chap called Mike Tidswell, was probably not going to survive, and indeed he didn't. To be there, you know, as the sun was setting, you know, with the with the village obviously re- rebuilt, but which had been obliterated, and the villagers talking about, yes, this is where the Japanese, you know, were hammered, were, um, were defeated um, by the British, and realising that, and, and apparently, were the first British to visit there since 1945, and it was a it was a truly amazing moment. Uh, but I couldn't have found it without the regimental diaries, without also diaries um, books. He was I was really lucky in that three of Walter's officers um, wrote and published their own accounts of fighting under him in Burma. So I had his account and their three books as well, and the regimental diaries. And somebody very kindly um, sent me some maps from the University of Texas that had this village, you know, from the 1950s. Somehow they'd mapped of where this village was, which was, you know, very, very long way off the beaten track. So with a combination of those and a very helpful guide, um, we were able to yeah, find this totally out of the way place and 
literally walk in his footsteps and it was a very spine tingling moment i wish i'd been able to spend longer there but you know the sun was setting and we had to we had to go what, 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 did you find that the um, the regiments are helpful and welcoming of this sort of research, or is it ha- just having to do it all yourself? Um, well, uh, the, the one of my greatest um, sources and and helps was the Gurkha Museum, which is in Winchester, um, and they they're incredibly helpful, um, and it's a really good museum, and they have this lovely um, room there where you know, like a a proper old-fashioned archive where you can literally see what's on the shelves and so I was able to find you know an unpublished diary from this chap called Tony Brand Crombie who'd fought under grandpa but he my grandfather but um he'd never published anything but you know there it was on a the box file box file on the shelf um which I just found by kind of you know shuffling through which you can't do in a big a big archive you have to know you have to know a bit what you're looking for with um yes yeah, someone like you Someone like you, you need a real plan, don't you? And, yeah. And, you, and 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 you have to you have to turn up and say what you're looking for, rather than rather than kind of follow your nose a bit. Exactly. It's, it's less possible to follow your nose at a place like you. Exactly. Um. And same with the Imperial War Museum. Um. Uh, whereas yeah. the National Army Museum, it's you know they're super helpful there. You can actually go and talk to an archivist and say this is the sort of thing I'm looking for um and they you know they'll point you in the right direction so there for example I was able to find the pre-war diaries of the first eight Punjabs you know um just discover things about my uncle Edward um you know what he was up to in the 1930s before the war and follow his sort of route from India to Hong Kong where he got married back again to India uh and then you know, they had a little bit of information about uh, the first eighth Punjabs during the fight through Malaya and Singapore. So, so that was a great um, that you know there wasn't a huge amount about them about the first eighth Punjabs, uh, but that was that was something I could find and and really um, nail down Edward and Peter's movements. So, and then another place which was again you know trying to get where you can't get it straight from the horse's mouth or straight from you know a diary or a letter. Um, another place was um, the Royal College of Nursing archives. So again, you know, I was able to go there and kind of browse along the shelves and find diaries which were reproduced in their journal. Um, they had this fantastic journal that. Uh, so the nurses who trained at St Thomas's were known as Nightingales, obviously for Florence Nightingale. Uh, I think it was called the Nightingale Gazette. Included diaries and obituaries from nurses who'd been there at the same time as Aunt Ruth. So she told me this extraordinary story, which was sort of what started me off on the whole process of how, on the second night of the Blitz, she was um, she was at St Thomas's. She'd only been nursing for you know um, a year. A bomb hit the hospital in the middle of the night. This is the second night of the Blitz, so it's of early hours of the 9th of September 1940. And she and lots of the other nurses were sleeping in the basement of the nurse's house and um, the bomb just came straight through and buried lots of them in the rubble. And she told me about how she was buried under the rubble for hours. But going again, going back to the accounts, I could see that it felt like hours, but actually it wasn't hours. It was, you know, probably, you know, 40 minutes or something. She explained how she'd been helped out she was sort of stuck under this pile of rubble she was protected by an iron girder that had kind of bent over her and shielded her from the falling rubble the medical students all formed 
uh, rescue teams that night and went around trying to find um, survivors and helped pull several nurses out of the rubble under, under this building called Gassiot House. So Ruth had described this and how one of the, her rescuers was actually her brother Harold. Um, and they kind of poked a ladder down and, and she was able to crawl out, you know, covered in dust, but otherwise unhurt and went straight back on duty several hours later, you know, wearing a borrowed uniform. And then through the Royal College of Nursing, I was able to find accounts from other nurses. So she'd mentioned that another nurse, a friend of hers called Anne Cooper, had been blown by the blast onto Westminster Bridge. And I, you know, was able to find that in in one of these journals and also uh, accounts by other nurses who'd you know crawled out of the rubble covered in dust and with you know their feet cut by broken glass uh, and then the um, St Thomas's Hospital had its own journal um, its own gazette and that's kept strangely in King's College in London, London part of London University and I again was able to read Harold's account um, so her brother Harold who helped dug, dig her out of the rubble five nights later St Thomas's was hit again actually it was hit one more time and it was hit ten times in the war St Thomas's it was right over the river from um, the House of Parliament so it was kind of a, an obvious target and so Ruth was buried on the first night but dug out alive um, and the second night it was uh, the second night for the it was hit on the 13th of September nobody was killed but the third night was the what the third hit was the worst the 15th of september and harold who was a medical student uh was walking down a corridor in the basement with his great friend a chap called peter spilsbury and a bomb hit straight you know pretty much where he he was walking straight ahead above him and peter spilsbury was killed outright right next to him and they were in you know, mid-conversation Harold and Peter Spilsby's head was apparently taken straight off by flying rubble um, or a piece of metal and Harold was hit in the head and along with several others he was buried under the rubble and the fire brigade were there very quickly and had their hoses on and the whole hospital was you know filled with gas and the the um the pharmacy all the spirits in the pharmacy had caught fire and it was just this awful apocalyptic you know scene and the rescue teams were trying to dig people out and tunnelling under the rubble and the air raid was still going on overhead so they had to kind of dim their torches every time a plane came over and they they sort of did a head count and realised that several doctors were missing including um, Harold and they, they found Peter Spilsbury's body and then after one of the doctors and one of his friends had tunnelled, you know, a huge risk to himself, tunnelled under the rubble, they found Harold and they realised that he was still alive, he was unconscious, but they managed to get him out and he was in a coma. And he was taken to a hospital in Woking because the London hospitals outsourced as much as they could to outside London for you know uh, to keep them away from the air raids. Um, so he was taken to be treated by a neurologist in Woking and Ruth was summoned and told, look, your brother... He's very badly injured. If he if he survives, he's going to be brain damaged. If I were you, I'd hope he dies. Um, but actually, after five days, he came out of his coma and he was perfectly fine. <laughs> so I was able to read his account of that night in the journal. I mean, he didn't remember anything between his conversation with his mate Peter and then waking up in working hospital. His rescuers that night, several of whom were awarded uh, the George Medal. The George Medal, would that be? The, yeah. Um, they'd also written accounts. And an amazing thing happened a few um, months ago. Um, a lady in our village um, 
who'd read my book um, got in touch and said, I've got somebody staying with me who is the um, great niece or no granddaughter of the chap who rescued your great uncle. No. Yeah. That's amazing. That was amazing. So I was able to put her in touch. She was visiting from, I can't remember where she's visiting from, but I was able to put her in touch with, my cousin Pam, Harold's one of Harold's daughters, and after all this pandemic business is over, they're going to get together and, oh, and meet. Yeah, so that's really nice. So, so it, is, it is. It is really is sort of detective work, isn't it? It's sort of piecing yeah. bits together and following little kind of clues and, and until their conclusion. And you have to hope that somewhere someone in your family is a hoarder, because actually. <laughs> Um, really late in the day, my, um, my cousin, Nick, um, who's the eldest son of the eldest of the six siblings, Edward, his wife, who's called Maybe, um, is a terrific family archivist. And she found all these letters that Edward had written during the war and before and during the war. That was absolutely brilliant because I could just fill in, you know, lots of gaps, um, through that and, and just get a, a flavour of also the rivalry um, between the two brothers, Edward and Walter, who were both, you know, sort of young, ambitious army officers and both ended up commanding their battalions at the same time. Edward on the Gothic line in Italy and and Walter in Burma. And uh, you, Edward was quite a prolific letter writer back to his parents. Um, he wrote in, um, I think it was May 1945, and he'd just been told he'd, he'd been awarded the DSO um, and so he wrote back to his parents um, saying, you know, been given the DSO. And then a few months later, he writes back saying, oh, Walter's got the DSO too, I hear. <laughs> and, he is... and, and, and Annabelle, as battalion commanders, how old are they at this point? Walter was about 30, um, 32. Um, and Edward was, um, he was a couple of years older, but he better sort of 35. Pretty young, though, still, to be a battalion commander by today's standards. Yeah, and, you know, what they had to do, you know, just reading about... It's just so relentless, isn't it? Uh, you know, there's no there's no let-up. You're being shelled all the time, you know, on the Gothic line. Just going to... So there's a uh, one of the things I found in Regiment Star, which sort of had nobody in the family told me about, and Edward obviously never mentioned it, um, but right the end of the fighting in Italy um, when the Germans are just on the point of surrendering but they've sown the whole countryside more or less with mines and he goes for a meeting with another battalion commander you know a couple of miles away to discuss attack that they're going to do together the next day and the battalion diary literally in sort of two lines says um, on the way back um, CO blown into the air by a mine so you don't you know trodden pretty much not on top of but very close to a mine which had burned him in the air and um you know knocked him out for a bit but then he got up and carried on um and he was he was fine but you know that happened and you know my very similar thing probably within the same week t- to Walter in Burma you know in, at the battle of Tongdor he he's directing things from from sort of just over the ridge and he's got his radio set on his mule and as he, he puts his, he's just given his last of instructions, puts the receiver back, um, jumps over a ditch. And in that instant, the mule, the mule handler and the radio set are all blown up. He missed it by a second, two seconds. 
Absolutely amazing. Because, um, I mean, yeah. the incredible thing about it is that all six survived, don't they? Such close calls. You know, Peter came very close to death on the on the death railway. Um, and at the end of the war, when Walter um, is sent to Thailand to round up Jap- help round up the Japanese there who had surrendered, but the ones in Thailand who hadn't been defeated in battle really didn't think they had surrendered. So that was quite a... Um, a tough job um and he wanted to find out what happened to peter because there was practically no communication you know the letter there was not much in the way of a postal service between the camp it was very different to the prisoner of war camps in germany and so on that you know getting letters to and from prisoner of war camps the japanese didn't um have much of a postal service going um i think my great grandparents got one notification that peter was alive some point in 1943 and another in 1944 but then they didn't hear anything more um, I mean, just imagine and, just imagine yeah. so you know i do feel for my great aunt my great grandmother dorothea she was a bit of a battle axe but um she and arthur my great grandfather you know what a war you know one minute they what a lot of worrying the, i mean what Jesus. a lot of worrying you know ruth just survived a hit then she rings up to say harold's been you know Hit. He's going to be fine. Not not that she knew that, but she, you know, she said that he was. You know, Edward right in the thick of it. Walter right in the thick of it. Peter, they didn't know whether he was alive or dead. So, you know, absolutely amazing. I mean, it's incredible that they all came back. It really, it really is absolutely extraordinary. The most extraordinary story. I mean, I loved your book, as you know. It was, it was, it was just fantastic. I mean, a lot of people say, you know, I want to track down my my uncle or my grandfather or whatever, and and you know, where do I start? And and fortunately, the Luftwaffe didn't destroy the records for the Second World War, so because um, obviously they were still in the process of being made. So so Second World War records, military records, are still around, and you you can get those, but but they're not open to the public at the moment. But if you're a family member, you can ask for them. So the way to do that is to go onto the um, Ministry of Defence website, and you can apply for it. Um, and uh, we'll put up the the web links on Facebook and stuff, but it's um, uh, it's very easy to find. I mean, obviously, right now, um, you know, searching for people's personal military records um, from the past is not a top priority for the MOD. But but once COVID's over and over and done with, I mean, you know, everyone should do it because it's a pretty good service. And and as a family member, you have a right to 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 call that that military record and there it is you know and, and that gives you your start point because it gives yeah. you the service number it gives you where they exactly. were a particular date it'll give you the, the dates the, all yeah. the units um yeah. and then you can start to build a picture around that um you know by looking at kind of battalion war diaries or whatever it might be um yeah the battalion war diaries are great um and the other thing my other sort of real tip is read around as widely as you can so when ruth was still alive you know, the more I read of what was happening in London in 1940, then I could ask her, oh, what about that? Oh, well, Dunkirk was going on. Were, were you involved in Dunkirk? And she'd say, and, you know, she'd never mentioned before. Oh, yes. You know, I nursed the people coming back from Dunkirk and, you know, had to hold them as they were dying. And, you know, until you read a lot, you don't know the right questions to ask. Yeah. So, so well, that was... I mean, this has made me want to have a... Because I know a little bit about... I know about one of my my mother's father but i don't know about her uncle who's in the gloucesters and uh, and if you uh, and killed in burma in 44 and i mean if you put gloucester regiment burma into google which i've just done now it takes you to a world war 2 officer's died thing i put his surname in and there he is straight straight through to f- to find him in fact uh, when was he killed 
Anyway, th- th- there it is. You know, you can you can do it that that quickly and easily that actually this information is out there. People are compiling it and putting it on the internet, which I think is really interesting. Yes, and there's lots of people. Uh, so Facebook was great. You know, there are things like um, the Far East Prisoner of War um, Facebook group. Um, you know, there's people, ma- amazing people, just volunteers putting together prisoner of war records, putting them up online. There's also the Thai Burma Railway Centre in Thailand where they are you know, archiving every bit of information from the camps on the death railway. And if you ask them about your uncle or grandfather or whoever, they will come back with his his records. Um, you know, there are, there are incredible people out there. A lot of them just, you know, volunteers and enthusiasts. Yes, doing it for the sake of it, really. Yeah. I mean, it's it is very interesting, actually, how a, va- a vast amount of this is is kept going by enthusiasts. These things exist. These sort of you know, this sort of organic um, yeah. cu- curation of the history exists, and people know. I think people need to understand that if you you know you kind of you can kind of throw the throw the pebble into the internet, the pool, and you get lots of ripples back. It's is amazing, the, and you do yeah. end up down some rabbit holes, but some really wonderful yes, course, rabbit yeah. holes. But you can, but people can sort of get the ball rolling from from uh, during lockdown. And um, I mean, I suppose I suppose the message is, is is you know don't expect to have you know family history that's quite as exciting as yours, Annabelle. But uh. <laughs> well, it's amazing what you turn up. Yeah, and actually, loads of people got in touch after you know reading my book and said, oh, you know, you've prompted me to look look into my history, and they've found incredible stories. You know, that that's the that's the wonderful thing I found with writing my book is how many ordinary people did extraordinary things in the war I mean, you know but but, but if you don't who... look after your own family then then you know within a few generations they're forgotten they're, they're, they're just they're they're absolute toast you know if you, if you want your family story to continue then actually it's really really worth doing this yes totally you know and even if you only just get down a few details so um ruth was given this book called a grandparent story and it just it was it's quite a sort of trite I suppose basic little journal but it said you know where were you born what school did you go to who was your best friend who was your favorite brother you know what did you want to do when you're older and she just kind of wrote two you know a couple of words on each thing but it was it was you know really helpful because Mm. you know then I knew that Peter was the naughtiest brother and her favourite and Walter always bossed her around and made her warm the loose seat up for him well, before he which is what, Well, you, you discover what, 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 what... And that's what families are like, aren't they? You just, yeah. And so, you, you, again, it's this thing that they, 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 they come into colour out of sort of a black and white image, don't they? they exactly. Uh, and they, and they, they, beca- they, become pe- they become people rather than people in the past. Yeah, and, and for uh, me that was great because, you know, some of my great uncles I'd never met. Um, so getting to know them through talking to their children and through the letters and and so on was was fantastic and um somebody who got in touch said that they'd been prompted to get their ch- their children to do a sort of desert island discs on their grandparents and record you know their grandparents talking about their lives and i thought that was just a fantastic idea so you know anything like that is well, thank you so much for talking to us and, and taking us, I mean, not just through your family's history, but how we all find out about our family's histories. Um, well, thank uh, you very much. Really, really fascinating, Annabelle. And, um, and again, it makes you think, right, well, what can I, like James says, there's lots you can find out without getting up off your arse. And seeing as we're not allowed to get up off our asses at the moment, no one has an, any excuse but to go and find <laughs> the stuff out. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and it's just so much fun, you know. What yeah. nicer way to spend your time than... Um, th- this, what's not to like? Is that what we say, James? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. WNTL. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, thank you very much. Um, uh, ladies and thank gentlemen, Annabelle Venning, thanks for listening. Thank you. Cheerio. Thanks again to Annabelle for that fascinating insight into her family and also for sharing her tips on how to research your own family history. As we mentioned during the chat, this is the start of a new weekend series devoted to telling the family stories of our listeners during the Second World War. The plan is that we'll release a show each Sunday morning in which James and I read out your family stories. We've already had lots of these stories sent to us and they're genuinely fascinating. They really underline how the war touched everyone's family one way or another. But now we want to share them with you, the We Have Ways community. If you'd like to share your family story, please send it to the team here at We Have Ways. Anything from 50 words up to a maximum of 500 if you've got an absolute belter. You can email us at wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com. Please do make the subject of the email family stories so we don't miss it. That email address, once again, wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com. Or if you are an independent company member on Patreon, we do already have a family stories tab there, which has a big thread ongoing. And we're going to start to mine that seam. Just leave your story there and we'll check them regularly. We hope you enjoy this upcoming series. We are really looking forward to reading your stories and sharing them with the rest of the We Have Ways gang. Thank you.